Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 6. I call it the catastrophe. You'll see why. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And we've already seen that the trend of humanity in previous chapters was a descent massively into the mire of sin. And we've noted the scripture says that the days just preceding the coming of the Lord as a conquering king will be like the days that we see described here. You can refer to Matthew 24, 37 for that. The fulfillment of much prophecy coinciding with this time leads us to believe that we are indeed in the last days. Consequently, these verses are very important for us to understand and very pertinent. Examining verses 1 and 2, we can note that population increase was a factor. Simple arithmetic and some reasonable assumptions concerning frequency of birth lead us to expect that Adam could have lived to see between 1 to 5 million of his descendants. And it's not unrealistic to think of as many as 7 billion people on the planet at the time of the Great Flood. You do the math yourself. But of even more importance was what was transpiring in the human gene pool. Let me explain. It has to do with these, quote, sons of God, unquote, and the fact that they were taking wives, quote, of all whom they chose, unquote. This latter part of the Hebrew means they were completely unrestrained. They were impregnating huge numbers of women in unbridled wantonness. Even for sinful man, it was an unnatural frenzy of sexual activity. But why? Now, David Guzik says, Many people have understood that the sons of God were from those, or the line rather, of Seth, and the daughters of men were from the line of Cain. And this describes an intermarriage between the godly and ungodly, something God specifically prohibits in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. Um, But this approach leaves many unanswered questions. Why did this make God angry enough to wipe out almost all the earth's population? Why was there something unnatural about the offspring of these unions? He continues, it is more accurate to see the sons of God as either demons, angels in rebellion against God, or uniquely demon-possessed men, and the daughters of men as human women. The phrase sons of God clearly refers to angelic creatures when it is used the other three times in the Old Testament. The translators of the Septuagint who translated sons of God as angels, clearly thought it referred to angelic beings, not the line of Seth. Now, in the book of Matthew, 
Jesus clearly said that in heaven, the angels do not have sexual relationships. So, do we have a conflict? I don't think so. In the book of Jude, we read, quote, The angels who did not keep their proper or own domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example. That's Jude, verse 6 and 7. So again, in heaven we know that the angels have no sexual relations, but these angels left the heavenly realm, left their own domain, and Jude points out that it was specifically to engage in unnatural sexual relations. As a consequence, they were imprisoned in chains of darkness in what is called the abuso, or the abyss, the bottomless pit. These are the worst of the worst, the kind of demons even the demons don't want to be around. Recall the story of Jesus' encounter with a demoniac legion by the Sea of Galilee. Legion was possessed of a horde of demons who, when they saw Jesus coming, pleaded with him not to torment them, and specifically not to send them to the abyss. Now, the bottomless pit is probably not a place anyone would want to find themselves, but I'm convinced that their real fear was to be in the presence of these especially nasty spirits. We don't need to fear them, however. Quote, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. That's First Peter 3. You can also see Second Peter 2. Jesus told them, Hands off my people. I've paid the price for them, and I'm giving notice. They are off limits. But why, if they are already in chains, would this be necessary? Well, we are told in Revelation that these beings are let out of this prison for a season during the Great Tribulation. That's in Revelations chapter 9. And they are truly hideous. It says that because of them, men will seek to die to escape their torture, but will not be able to. Another reason you don't want to be here during the tribulation. But if you are, friend, turn to Jesus. Make him the Lord of your life. The eternal reality of hell is far, far worse than the temporary hell on earth of the tribulation. You see, although we believe the church will be in heaven during this time, there will still be those on earth who come to a saving relationship with Christ. It's quite likely they will be martyred for their faith, but many will indeed gladly hug the cross. From the book of First Enoch, 
which is not inspired scripture, but still may contain some accurate accounts, it says, and it came to pass that the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. Well, they took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go unto them to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments. They became pregnant, and they bore great giants. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. Again, thanks, David Guzik, for that. All this begs the question, why would Satan send his angels to intermarry, either directly or indirectly, with human women? Let's look at the next two verses for the clue. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. I believe it's possible that Satan was trying to pollute the gene pool of mankind, to introduce a genetic virus that would make the human race unfit for bringing forth the Son of Man, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, promised in Genesis 3.15. If so, he nearly succeeded, for the human race became so corrupted that God had to clear the slate and imprison the rebellious angels. For some people, this is hard to believe, perhaps because it's difficult to accept anything supernatural, but Keep in mind, it was hard for the people of Noah's day to believe a worldwide flood was coming. It had never even rained, let alone flooded. That's why it's so important to draw conclusions from the Word of God, rather than depending on your own frame of reference. That is what's comfortable for us to accept intellectually. Now, that's not to say Our intellect is less important, part of our relationship with God is fundamental. But faith can sometimes compel us to believe in concepts that are beyond our intellectual understanding. Uh, Consider the Trinity, predestination, grace, and all that. Note that the Lord said his spirit was striving with man. The Hebrew word for striving is a primary root and denotes principally to rule or to judge. But the sense we have here is of contending with man, pleading a cause. You see, there came a point when his long suffering ended. However, I don't think it was a matter of God getting tired of presenting the truth or convicting their hearts, because he doesn't tire and never changes in character. Rather, there came a point when man's heart got so used to sin and so hard that it could no longer receive truth. It simply wasn't possible for it to 
hear truth or receive conviction. It was like the following passage in the book of Hebrews, which says in Hebrews chapter 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my work forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, man was self-destructing and deaf to the voice of the Lord. Of course, this sounds like today, right? Recent news articles tell of scientists who are trying to clone headless people in order to... Harvest organs? Meanwhile, Christians and other political prisoners in China are executed for the same purpose. Traditional families are disintegrating before our eyes, while homosexual couples are married by mainline churches. Children are murdered, raped, and prostituted in every major city. Nuclear arsenals are targeted at civilian populations. Television pumps out toxic imaginations on hundreds of channels in hundreds of millions of homes. Demonically inspired religions are rampant and have infiltrated every facet of society, even the church. Not a pretty picture, but indeed, it is a replay, if you would, of the days of Noah. Sometimes you just have to start all over Change the rules. That's what God did. And he did it in order to save man in the end. How ironic that in order to save man, he had to all but destroy him. But that can be the case sometimes with the individual as well. Many years ago, I heard this story from a pastor I knew. And he knew this young man named Steve, who was a really outstanding athlete, a pole vaulter. And he was one of the world's best, and in the prime of his life, he was poised to set the world record. In preparing for an upcoming meet, he was jumping on a trampoline, and while doing a flip, came down hard on the metal bar which acted as the frame. He hit it with his neck and was instantly paralyzed, a quadriplegic. Some years later, this pastor recalled that he was invited to a conference along with many other young athletes, and was looking forward to hearing this famous pole vaulter speak. The first night, the speaker didn't show up, and likewise the second. Well, the third night, however, a somewhat disgruntled crowd welcomed this man, Steve, who came on stage in his wheelchair and approached the microphone. It didn't take long for the crowd to still as he shared the testimony of his accident, and apologized for the first two nights. He explained that oftentimes the pain in his body was simply too great for him to deal with. But what really caught their attention was when he explained the joy 
in his heart. You see, he said, although I thought I was a Christian before the accident, it's only afterwards that I've truly come to know my Lord personally, intimately. He continued, if I had it to do all over again, if it was my choice to lose all that I have lost and to endure what I must now endure, if it meant having what I have now, an awareness of my Savior, a wonderful relationship with Him, I'd do it again. I would. Many young athletes gave their hearts to Christ that evening. Sometimes it takes such difficulty to save us. Genesis goes on. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only continual evil. Man had become wholly evil, and this is another lesson. In the beginning, all he knew was good, for all that God had created was good. In fact, very good. But then man wanted to have the knowledge of good and evil, which simply meant that he was unsatisfied with good alone and wanted evil. Well, as we all know, he got what he wanted. As a result, the pendulum swung clear to the other side, 100% evil. That's the way it is with sin. It's never satisfied. It demands more and more until you're consumed. It's a deadly parasite that kills its host. But all the while, it tricks you into thinking you're still in control. In this verse, the word great means literally captain. That is, the wickedness of man ruled the earth. Originally, God commissioned man to rule the earth in love and purity, but as Satan's marionette, his puppet, man has ruled the earth in wickedness. Genesis continues, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy the man whom I have created from the face of the earth both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, this does not mean that God was surprised by the state of affairs or that if he had it to do over again, he wouldn't. What this does show us is that even though God is omniscient and knows the end from the beginning, he is nevertheless deeply affected by man's pain. In fact, these words mean that he was experiencing pain of a sort in his own heart. But he allowed this to happen, and he allows suffering in each of our lives. Sometimes we ask, why, Lord? But it's never a matter of getting the answer to why. Rather, it's about understanding that he himself is the answer. We look to the cross. We look to the deepest love of all. And Genesis says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Some scholars believe Noah 
was a symbol of the Jewish people who will be God's witnesses during the tribulation, likewise finding grace in his eyes. As for Noah, can you imagine being just about the only God-fearing man in a world filled with perversion and violence? It's getting that way again. Can you imagine working for as much as 120 years on an outlandish project like the Ark? (laughs) I'm doing good if I can build a bookshelf. And it's really outlandish. Now Noah was about to receive some encouraging words from the Lord in the next verse. But before that, we see that he wasn't saved from the flood because of his uprightness or integrity but rather because of God's grace. You see, Noah was a sinner just like you and I, and he was the recipient of God's marvelous grace. That is unmerited, undeserved favor and blessing. This too is consistent as a foreshadow of the Jewish people, for Israel will be saved because of grace not because of their religious piety or ingenuity. Now, may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust Him. Look for our next podcast, and may you realize more of His grace today.